Welcome to Faithfully Memphis. I'm Father Jeff Marks, the rector of St. Andrew's Church in Collierville, Tennessee. We're one of the parishes in the Episcopal Diocese of West Tennessee. And every Thursday at 8 a.m., we have this opportunity to discover the role of faith and love in the lives of people and to be broadcast from WYXR 91.7 FM in Memphis, Tennessee. So we want to start things off by the saint of the day and I chose Catherine of Siena. She was born with her twin sister in March uh, 25th, 1347. She was the 24th of 25 children. Uh, Her nickname was Joy as a child. Uh, She was very precocious. At age five, she had a vision of Jesus and dedicated her life to Jesus at age seven. And she was a renowned mystic a severe ascetic. She died at the age of 33 on April 29th, 1380. So April 29th is her feast day. Uh, in the, her earliest years were the worst of the bubonic plague, 1347 to 1351. And so that's the peak of the bubonic plague where almost half of Europe died in a pandemic and the world population contracted by 20%. So One reason I thought she was uh, a good choice is she obviously lived in a time which puts our COVID problems in perspective uh, compared to that plague. Now, there were lots of church and political divisions in that time, and the main focus of attention was on the papal office. Uh, We also live in times of some division, so I thought Catherine was a good example of what one does in such times. Uh, she was just a simple laywoman at a time where where women did not have a lot of power. Uh, she emerged as an important figure for reconciliation in Europe. Uh, she was very humble, but she was also very strong-willed. Her focus on Jesus and the importance of love in, in her writings, this comes through so strongly, uh, but it also comes through in the way that she lived her life. Uh, she was known for her generosity to the poor her ministry to the needy and to the outcast. Uh, Her writings were deeply influential on Italian literature. And in 1970, along with St. Teresa, she was declared a doctor of the church by the Roman Catholic Church. And she and Teresa were the first women to ever be recognized as doctors of the church. So in her own time of political conflict, church problems, and social upheaval, Catherine is a model for patience, for holy kindness, and for great courage. She once said, proclaim the truth and do not be silent in fear. But she also said, you are rewarded not according to your work or time, but according to the measure of your love. Perhaps only a saint can keep two things like that in balance. She worked toward the reform of the clergy and the call for all people to love God very deeply. And those are both good ideas in any time or place. Uh, God himself told her to just be yourself and you will set Italy aflame. And that was obviously true. She had a huge influence in her time. She received a spiritual stigmata and a stigmata would be the wounds of Christ. And she asked that they be spiritual so that they would not draw attention to her. 
And Catherine once said, nothing great is ever achieved without much enduring. Nothing great is ever achieved without much enduring. In this, she honors our Lord, who obviously changed the world from a cross. Catherine was an associate of the Dominicans. She was not a nun, but she was an associate of the Dominicans. And that's the last reason why she's very uh, ideal for us to talk about today, because our guest today, Father Christian Signani, is also a Dominican associate. So we ask St. Catherine, please pray for us. You're listening to Faithfully Memphis on WYXR, and we'll be right back. Welcome back to Faithfully Memphis on WYXR. So uh, St. Andrew's Church in Cuyahville uh, has decided that we're going to try to model our ministry after Jesus Christ. And 
as we looked in the scriptures, what we saw that Jesus went around declaring that God is near. He may not be seen, but he's very near, close at hand. And Jesus healed people. He exercised demons and he taught. And that was the primary components of his proclamation. In addition to that, Jesus did work of reconciling humans to one another and human humanity to God. And we might say that Jesus's task was to make us into one family. Now, we understand that the tribes and nations of the world are not completely reconciled yet. We see that in the daily news. We also know that disease and injuries still trouble us, that there's still sickness and people troubled by the demonic. Uh, we know that individually and corporately, the promise of Jesus is still being realized and that there is far more to come. In our ministry, we focus on healing bodies and souls, but we also believe the healing of human relationships and communities is also vital. The divisions among humans date back to the earliest days, uh, back to Cain and Abel, in fact, as does God's rejection of human hatred and violence. In the flood story, is in fact God's rejection of the violence he sees on the face of the earth. So God in Jesus Christ calls each person and all people to recognize that we are his children, to love, honor, and serve him, and to love and honor each other. So everyone is called in and everyone's expected to do their part. In our church services this week, we've been reading from John 17, where Jesus famously prayed to the Father, that we would be one as he and the Father are one. Jesus also prays for our protection, saying that the world will hate his followers. In chapter 15, Jesus says, As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Abide in my love. You will abide in my love if you keep my commandments. We've also been reading from the first letter of John, which have many of the same themes as the gospel, is centering on the importance of Jesus, on faith, and of love. But between the lines you pick up that in the early church that he's writing, John is addressing a church which is struggling with integrity and obedience in a church that does not agree on everything, in a church where there are conflicts. The outside world is indifferent and sometimes hostile, but the church can also be divided about all manner of things. And those of us in the church know some of them are important, but many of them are not very important at all. So the question is raised, how does love prevail? How can we disagree in ways which still demonstrate that we love one another? How do we avoid becoming so righteous that we have gener generated disdain for other people? And how do we save ourselves from a self-righteousness which puts our us, in our opinions, in the place of God and creates conflicts? and even violence in communities. So today I've asked the associate of St. Andrew's father, Christian Signani, to join us. And he, you're going to find he has a very unique perspective about what civil unrest looks like and violence and also what healing and love are about. So Father Christian, thank you for being here and I will let you share with us uh, your wisdom. Thank you for inviting me. Uh, father Jeff, you spoke about proclamation of the kingdom of God here on earth and I was reminded of the famous Karl Barth, who was teaching during the World War I as the fighting got closer, Barth would teach about the hope that the disciples of Jesus taught in the midst of the social unrest. It is this hope that 
seems to be like a candle in the wind, too fragile or too delicate, sensing hope even in the midst of flying bullets. Those who have experienced this palpable and hope and love of our Lord Jesus Christ know that it is a gift from God. I am sure that every one of us have a life story to tell. We all have a journey we have taken to be where we are at present. My journey has been tumultuous, to say the least, and it took me a while to understand about embracing God's peace and the life of service to God. A civil war erupted in the early 90s, which eventually led to the genocide of 1994. I was 23 years old at the time, studying at the University of Rwanda. When we talk about healing, my mind goes to those very difficult, dark days that our home country was engulfed in. I remember walking 38 miles back home from the high school. We couldn't stay in school because war was getting awfully closer. A series of war propaganda sharpened people's minds everywhere. We experienced unprecedented sufferings, at least in my lifetime, where many people lost their lives, but it was never to be compared to the scale of the genocide and its aftermath, of which later on the country lost millions of lives. But one question on the minds of many was, how can one heal from such a tragic event, especially mass community violence? I would say it is the work of God. It is mysterious. The first problem to overcome is seeing ourselves uh, as us versus them. We humans tend to see ourselves as the good ones and the others presumably are the bad ones and do not deserve good things. This is a human mentality. It is also part of tribalism. Tribalism can be good for social cohesion, but when taken to extremes, it can lead to bigotry, even war. So the feud between Hutus and Tutsis is as old as this republic, several hundreds of years. The bitter experiences are recounted by oral tradition from generation to another generation, which preserves and disseminates hatred in other generations. So without the help of the Holy Spirit guiding us, it is hard to consider facing our neighbors whom we think are the bad ones. In this case, perpetrators of atrocities committed on either side. So there are suspicions and walls that we put up in an effort to protect ourselves, then it becomes a great obstacle to overcome. So I was gratefully, um, I, I saw many people who were victims and we had great conversations, those who survived to tell the tale and those who survived years of wandering in forest, escaping this tribal war machine unleashed on our communities. So where should we begin in order to reconcile? It is a struggle, a change of perspective. It has to be a total new thinking. We have seen individuals that have taken a giant step to speak to their neighbors and forgive. 
those were a great expression of hope for the future. There were also, unfortunately, instances of where anger has led many to revenge. It takes a courage beyond oneself to defeat our own addiction to being in the right and others supposedly in the wrong. The courage to end the cycle of violence as we curb our need for revenge. The courage to admit that our country can never be built without all of its children. Reconciliation is tough. It's the day-to-day life of letting go of our bitter hatred that perhaps we have nursed and held on for a long time. It is an openness to see my neighbor as a human like me again. Some Rwandans still carry heavy scars on their bodies. Perhaps even scarier are the scars on the heart. Our lives were never the same ever since. We have a choice to look forward to a new life, a new country of our own creating where all Rwandans can decide to have a future together without recycling the oppression of each other, which began hundreds of years earlier. So God invites us to wherever we are to begin a journey of healing, embracing Jesus' peace and conquering fear. You ask, was I affected personally by by the war and genocide? Uh, Yes, almost every citizen lost a family member. I was nearly killed on numerous occasions on our way out into exile. We were always aware of the possibility of being killed at all times, so we never wandered far. But each time trouble came, I was saved miraculously, which means that there are many who weren't as lucky to escape as we did. I lost a cousin and his wife when they became army practice target. Another was beaten to a pulp when he returned back to exile from exile, and he was paralyzed as a result and spent a decade in prison with no trial and no papers. So we lost uncles and aunts, burnt alive in a stadium. So what can we do to bring healing? Is there a biblical basis for praxis what individuals or communities can do to heal from such tragedy? Well, on top of my head, I'm thinking of Christ's commandment, love one another as I have loved you. Jesus taught us to pray, forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. Love covers a multitude of sins. Carry one another's burdens. Let no root of bitterness spring up and trouble you. But I will restore you to health and heal your wounds, declares the Lord. Jeremiah chapter 30 verse 17. When people have lived as enemies for the entire lives, it takes a special kind of courage to live in a new perspective and to overcome fear of the unknown. Thank you. Well, Father Christian, thanks for sharing um, your story. And I, I know when you and I first met a, a couple of years ago that um, 
I invited you to come to St. Andrews, and one of the first things you did was we had an actual meeting of our healing team, and, and you joined the team there. And we went around and we were praying for each other, and we prayed for some other people as well. And so I, I, I guess one of the things I'd find interesting for you to go into a little more in depth is, I mean, ministry in Collierville is obviously very different from Rwanda. But how how have your experiences as a priest in Collierville, Tennessee, uh, helped you with your processing what took place in Rwanda? I think one thing to to remember is that uh, pain, wherever you are in the world, is still pain. And there are pain with uh, physical pain. There is also pain of a memory or pain on the heart. And so my experiences there um, has helped me to have a lot of more empathy, to be with people present to them where they are at and to be able to pray with them. And that that's probably it's coming up more and more to, to be with people, to be able to to pray and to sense with them their pain and take it on your, your shoulder and to be with people and, and to, to be able to minister to them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so the universality of pain. Another thing you and I have talked about a lot is, is my, well, our struggle as priests to, uh, to avoid getting involved with a lot of the politics where we have a divided parish where different people have, they vote for different people, they have different values. And what are your insights, you know, as I've shared with you now, I want your insights into avoiding conflicts uh, because as you know, I take very seriously uh, the rhetoric you hear, uh, the way people have funneled their, their viewpoints on everything so that everything is just seen through this very small uh, vision of our explanation of what is evil and what is good. And I thought you were, you were really brilliant in talking about how we do that. But how do we keep out of the level of anger and conflict uh, where people marching in the streets turn into riots and then other groups rise up and do counter-riots and, and it ends up becoming murder in the street as you literally experienced as a young man? One thing is that uh, as Christians, we are ambassadors of peace. And so I think that uh, there is a huge danger of being uh, sucked into all kinds of of winds and uh, hurricanes that people brings to us. And they are already in pain from the things that they understand, from their experience or whatever is their belief. And then they are, they are, we do not want to be part of that, but rather we need to be centers of healing where when they come to us, they are, they are kind of seeking to seek that kind of peace. Because if we go into it, then how will we help that situation? How will we bring both sides? And I think the church is the, the, the hospital, is a place where if you want to be healed, if you... If there are people from all kinds of beliefs, they should be safe at the church that where you don't have the same belief, but they you can sit together and that's a, a beautiful place to be. And the church is a place of healing. That's how I view things. And um, if, if you were to come to church and be alienated, that is not, it's contrary to the gospel of Jesus Christ. We mm-hmm. want you to come and find Jesus and find healing in God. 
Uh, there's a, I don't know, it may actually be an African uh, story that, but there's a the tale of, of different men are brought to an elephant. They're all blind. And one feels the leg and describes the elephant like a tree. And another feels the, the tail and describes elephants must be like a rope. And then one feels the trunk and it says the elephant must be like a large snake. And one feels the ear and says it must be, you know, like a, a, a sheet. And, and the point is that no human being has an accurate experience, that our beliefs are based in part on truth and also part on issues growing up, right. uh, misperceptions and all that. So in, in preaching the gospel here, what we've tried to do is really go into the scriptures, but obviously I'm... I have one part of the elephant, you have one part of the elephant. But but I guess what I'm wondering is how do we engage with people who are convinced that their viewpoint is the just viewpoint, it's the only righteous viewpoint? How how do we address that no human is actually 100% accurate? And also I'd like to know what your thoughts are about how are our underlying family wounds growing up those issues being projected onto other people? And do you think that that, in fact, takes place? Indeed, indeed. And I think especially in leadership, because in leadership, you fa you are um, shaping people's lives. And so I think that it is true when some of those wounds, if they stay unchecked, then they, they have a way of coming out in different ways that if you are hurt, then you, you kind of eventually hurt other people in the process and so we it, it would be just wonderful to to begin a journey of healing where we recognize that we have these wounds and that we can bring to God and our God is a powerful God it's he's a gentle and and wonderful and healing in which some of those things get taken care of and those burdens come off our lives, but it is true that there is a danger of being able to 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 not be helpful to communities because of our own personal wounds. Well, I know the the Hebrew word for what we call repentance is literally means to turn around on a path, or uh, in sin is missing the mark, so it being inaccurate. Right, and then the Greek metanoia is almost more like changing your mind, change the way you think. So. In your experience, have you had to change, struggle with changing your mind as you look back on those who harmed your loved ones? Oh, definitely. M my biggest experience one way was when I returned back to Rwanda, my idea was that uh, I would go to sit with people who have that kind of pain of what has happened and, and cry with them and those who are happy to be happy with them because that's what the Bible tells us to do. But by listening to their pain, I think for me, the biggest thing was that they, it was wonderful for me to be able to hear their pain and for them to ask me what my pain was, the years I spent into exile, how tough it was and the stuff that happened to us in exile. And they really wanted to hear from me who they could say I was their enemy, but we kind of sat and, and talked about our lives and it was wonderful to to, to have that exchange, to say how terrible this war had been, where 
we all have been affected, lost loved ones, and on the journey to healing. Yeah, as you know, I was a counselor for several years at Youth Villages and then director training. So I, I encountered lots of, not genocide, but similar stories. Kids who grew up and saw dead bodies in the street, violence in the home. Uh, actually, one child's mother was shot in the next room. So not the overarching societal kind of violence, but in some cases, probably there were days that these kids lived through stuff very similar to what you did in Rwanda. And I remember as I interacted with these kids, uh, many of whom were perpetrators, uh, some had raped people, some in a couple of cases attempted murder, uh, very violent, some of them, a uh, lot of really angry kids. Uh, many of them, especially the ones I worked with, had low-level intellectual function, which we don't really think about how hard it is for someone to to understand another person requires some sort of, of insight. And so these they, they didn't have a lot of empathy. They didn't have a lot of sympathy. They didn't have a lot of insight. But what changed in me was, like there's an expression, someone who's a thug mm. or low life. I mean, we have these words that people use. Uh, they'll call someone, you know, they hear a story in the news about someone did some horrible thing. They say, well, they're just an animal. And I never allow people to say that in my presence because I knew these perpetrators as victims in their childhood. Yes. So many times these perpetrators had been victimized as small children. And so the question I found myself asking is, well, what would you expect someone who is beaten like that or who was abused like that, or who was sexually molested like that? What do you expect them to grow up to be? And, and so as I hear you talk, one of the things that I, I think comes through in, in and your teaching is the need to have empathy, mm. to view the other person as one like yourself, which is the, mm. the Jesus said, love one another as one who's like you. Yes. And also this idea of, of looking seriously at yourself in the mirror and facing, I guess sometimes we don't want to face what's wrong with us. Right. So there's a lot of projection going on. And I think you alluded to that in the beginning when you said, I'm always right, they're always wrong. Right. Uh, what I do is, is self-defense. What they do is evil. Right. Uh, we're the good guys. So any yeah. other thoughts on that? I, I was thinking about what you were mentioning about the, the kids who um, have lived maybe half their entire lives as in the um, sort of uh, survival mode. And when a person is in a survival mode, it cannot use that part, part of the brain that is creative, uh, I want to better my life. I want to feel new things. They are not there because the, their brain is at the survival mode. And we have seen that. And it takes it could take years and years for a person to rebuild. And, and I think for us, what it teaches me is that when I see people, I, I, see, I say they are probably at one stage, one of those stages, mm -hmm. and they could be redeemed. Is there anybody who is beyond help? It, tell ourselves we need to, to see people at a raw stage, but they can be healed. Well, I, I think you'd agree. One of the stunning things about Jesus is, and it's not really written about in the scriptures, uh, but we know it's the historical reality. The Roman occupation was brutal. 
And you know, there's one one story where they'll say, uh, do, "Do you think the people whose blood was mixed with the sacrifices?" What what they're talking about there is the Roman soldiers went in and slaughtered people during a church, well, what we would call church service during the sacrifices. Mm -hmm. And what Jesus says is, do you think they're worse than you? No, but no. if you don't repent, something worse is coming. And, and the reference, the direct reference Jesus is making is to the Roman army invading, which is what happened in, in the 70s, and they, they killed hundreds of thousands of people. So they didn't repent, they didn't turn around. So we're sitting in a situation we got to choose, and we are making that choice uh, corporately and individually each day. Are we going to live together and kind of try to hash out in a humane way our differences mm -hmm. and make compromises, or are we going to take a stand and say, my way or the highway, uh, and then face off with people who are just as belligerent right. and, and bellicose? But, but the fact that Jesus was talking about loving your enemy— he was talking about loving the enemy who crucified people in public. Uh, you said no one escaped the war without family members being murdered. Uh, that horrible story that family members died because they were being used as target practice. Mm -hmm. Well, I would think in Jesus's day, there were a number of cases of very similar sorts of abuses. And yet Jesus says, love your enemy. And so I think you have insight that we, in this culture, maybe don't. Uh, we feel safe hating our enemies. A lot of people, you know, they go on Facebook and write their, all the blanks, whatever they disagree with are, are horrible. It's easy to have that enemy that you can't see, that you write down <laughs> and then you just, you, because he's not in the same room as you. Right, right. Yeah. So, so in, in drawing parallels between your experience and Jesus, how inspirational is Jesus for you? Just... Oh, amazing, amazing. I think it's beyond. Some people will say, can you even do that? Can you forgive your enemies? How does that look like? And that's a, a big question that people get to ask. Yeah, I, as you remember on Good Friday, I, uh, someone had come to me to talk about a similar situation. And his words were so, so simple, but yet so deep. He said, I just have to go to Calvary with Jesus and climb up on that cross. And be well, he didn't say climb, he said be crucified. And that was my language, climate, but be crucified and forgive the world. And it, you know, as I look at the political turmoil, the dif disagreements on, on human sexuality, on race, and all that, uh, all of us, each and every one of us is going to have to be crucified and forgive the world for not being what we want it to be. And, uh, you know, I, I think that's what we're trying to do this church is yes. invite people into that process. Uh, how different is it ministering in in the Memphis, Tennessee area? Uh, <laughs> I would say that uh, the first thing people tell me is that uh, um, uh, the preaching is pretty short, and uh, I'm so used to uh, having to have an hour or two hours, and then we come back in the afternoon again, have at least three more hours. So that's a pretty big difference. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you so much, Christian, for being here with me and, thank and you. ministering with me. Thank you. You're listening to Faithfully Memphis on WYXR, and we'll be right back. The same God who makes the planet spin Tells the tide when it should rise Put the color in my eyes 
Welcome back to Faithfully Memphis on WYXR. So probably the hardest question I'm asked is, how do you love your enemy? And that's why I hired Father Christian, as is, is you see, he's a man who has had deep experiences of, of uh, how hard life can be and loving people. Uh, but the other question probably get most of the time is when people read the Bible, they say to me, well, is this true or is it just symbolic? And the big joke now is you never ask me that question because um, I, I think it's not a helpful question. So what I would do 
dealing with someone who's asking me this for the first or the second or the third time is, what do you mean by symbolic? So what does the word symbolic mean? And I give examples, you know, like a kiss or a hug, laughter and tears, they're all symbolic. So how do you understand those? If someone gets mad and hits me in the nose, that's a symbolic act, but it's also very real, very actual, and quite literal. Symbolism can frequently conveys uh, much more about the truth than any facts ever could, which is why we're more inclined to say it is hotter than the, than the doors of hell than we would say it's 94.3 degrees. I also like to talk to people about what the word truth means. Modern people are consumed with facts but rarely with truth. In fact, the word fact, here's a fact for you, the word fact as we use it today only dates to the middle of the 16th century or the beginning of the modern age. So when we talk about the idea of literal truth and facts, they are not superior to symbolic language. And that's some of the issues uh, with reference to science. Uh, many times when people say, I follow the science, they're implying to me they have some world of pure objective factuality, and that somehow theology and scripture are denigrated because they lack such firm facticity. Well, and I'm no scientist, but I have spent a little time reading books on physics, and pretty quickly science and science fiction seem to blur when you're reading some scientists speculating about black holes or time or multiverses. Uh, so the biblical accounts, like most deep thinking, are going to be symbolic. And the more I study them, the more I see these intricate connections. Uh, words like wind, water, fire, they're obviously multi-tiered realities. And words like bread, shepherd, garden, mountain, reflect numerous meanings with many different implications. The material and spiritual geographies frequently overlap. So that's why mountains are really tall rocks covered with grass and also a meeting place with the gods. So I think thinking of truth in terms only of facts is not helpful. Any more than knowing someone's height, weight, date of birth, and place of birth gives you their core identity. I'll, I'll share one example. Maybe this will kind of enlighten you a bit. So the first time I read the Exodus account and saw that the words face, water, wind or spirit, land, and separate were all present with clear echoes of Genesis 1. And as I bounced back and forth looking at these words, I suddenly realized that the author was trying to explain to us that in the Exodus, this is a new creation and a new humanity is coming to the fore. I spent over an hour looking at the words and the symbolism and we don't have that much time today, but I, I hope you see that when we talk about is it true or is it symbolic, uh, symbolic is true. And facts are rarely able to convey the depth of meaning that you're going to find in the scriptures when you're encountering Jesus in the life-giving words of the Bible. So I hope that's a helpful um, reflection for you. You're listening to Faithfully Memphis on WYXR, and we'll be right back. In the morning when I rise In the morning when I rise In the morning when I rise Give me Jesus 
You can find the Episcopal Diocese of West Tennessee on Facebook, Instagram, and at our website, episwesttennessee.org. That's E-P-I-S-W-T-N dot org. If you'd like to get in touch with us at St. Andrew's in Episcopal Church in Kyerville, you can also find us on Facebook or at our website, uh, standrewskyerville.org. It, and that's S-T-A-N-D-R-E-W-S-C-O-L-L-I-E-R-V-I-L-L-E dot org. 
And we have lots of sermons and teaching that you can listen to as well. If you'd like to listen to some past episodes of of, of this program, you can go to Spotify or any other podcast you listen to. And please remember, hit like and subscribe. So this is Father Jeff for Faithfully in Memphis. Until next time, stay safe, stay positive, and may God bless you. Oh, 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 o